Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. I want to read from you from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, Ben's going to preach on the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read from verses 4 onwards. Uh, if you've got your Bible there, or it'll be on the screen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8 from verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still accustomed to idols, that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Thanks, Ross. Awesome. Hey, everyone, my name's Ben. As Ross mentioned, it's good to be here. It's good to keep working through this series in... Corinthians. So let's, uh, let's pray and then um, we'll dig into it again. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you for the joy that we have now to open up your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that whatever the things are that we're carrying into this moment, whatever the burdens, the baggage, the pain, the hurt, the difficulties of our week, we pray that now in this moment that we would be able to stop and hear from the living God. And so God, we pray that you'd shape us and change us And we pray that you do this work by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. There are moments where spirituality hits you in the face. I don't know if you've had these moments uh, before, but for us, uh, it happened at the end of last year when we went to the Yamundi Markets. Now, you know what I'm talking about if you've been there, but let me explain the Yamundi Markets. It is a massive market, uh, which runs twice a week, I think, and Everywhere you look is spirituality. Everywhere you look, someone is selling you the dream of what life looks like and how to find this life and the fact that there is more to life. So uh, let me explain. We drove in trying to find a park. Elizabeth, my wife, and I and our daughter, Poppy, we drove in trying to find a park. And as we were driving in, the first thing that we saw was this guy who, no joke, looked like he had just come out of the 1980s Jesus movies. Right? He had the long hair, the beard, and in the middle of Yamundi, full white robe with like 12 people sitting around him. And as we were driving in, you just kind of go, well, there's, there's something. Um, the, the charm did wear off a little bit where, when you heard the Oka accent and him lighting up another cigarette. But, you, you know, still there's something going on there, right? But, but that was just the foretaste of what was to come. You see, when you go into these markets, and I, if I'm honest, I think every market's like this, 
everything is selling you this spiritual experience. You know, you get one shop with, which is bad clothes, right? That's markets for you. And then the next shop is like palm readings. One shop is bad rocks. And then the, the next shop is fortune telling. One shop is a, a terrible musician selling his CDs. And then the next shop is trying to speak from the dead. Welcome to your Monday markets. And this was like, there's, there's thousands of these things everywhere. Now, I know you're tempted to think, well, that's just your Monday for you, right? Uh, temptation's there to do that. However, if this was the experience of being confronted with spirituality there, the, the realization was actually when you come back to Brisbane, this too is all around us. You just kind of have to look. I mean, if you think about it, if we go left onto Logan Road, within like, what, a kilometer, a couple of kilometers, you'll hit the Sikh temple, the mosque, the Teo temple. You go right down Underwood Road and you get the Mormons and left, you get that massive Buddhist temple right down the end. Spirituality is kind of everywhere. If you don't want to go left, then you go right down Logan Road and you hit a different type of spirituality, a different type of temple, one that the West is a little bit more familiar with. We just call it Garden City. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's not really a temple, except it is kind of designed to sell you the dream of life and the good life. And what you see is thousands, of gather, thousands gather every weekend to tithe their money to the gods of sex and ambition and greed. You might not call it a temple, but I think you would say in the world of idols and gods and spirituality that there's something going on there that's more than just what meets the eye. Or maybe that's not the idol. Maybe that's not the spirituality for you. Maybe it was the worship service you watched on Wednesday night. You think, hang on, did we miss a weekly email? No, you watched it, the state of origin. Here's the ABC writing about the state of origin after it happened. Here's the quote. The cauldron is the cathedral of origin football where the worshippers gather to celebrate themselves, their team, and their state. And this maddening, brilliant three-game series, they are so sure they understand. I didn't write that. The ABC wrote that on Wednesday night. Spirituality is all around us because what you see in our world is people selling you the dream of where to find life, your security, your identity, and your worth. And it is truly everywhere. Now, as we think about this reality, the question we want to think about today is, in a world where spirituality is everywhere, how do we live in that world? Essentially, the question we want to think through is, what can we do, what should we do, and what can't we do? What can we participate in? You know, if there's temples, if there's other things selling us the dream of life, how do we live in a world where you get these kind of conflicting religions and idols and gods all around us? This is what we're going to think about today as we head into chapter 8 of, of 1 Corinthians. And what we're actually going to see is the next three chapters sort of are in and around this space, uh, this idea of talking about this. And today it's really about what we can participate in. So whether you're here today and you're sure about Jesus or not, I think we'll gain some clarity around who God is and what it means to live this life. So if you've got your Bibles there, pick it up in chapter 8. We're going to see from verse 1 how we can live in this world. And you, you see straight away in verse 1, you see that this is what Paul's speaking about, right? He, there's a sense of spirituality. He says, now about food sacrificed to idols. We're right there. And then he says this. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. 
So how do we navigate a world where spirituality is kind of everywhere, where there are conflicting reports about life and all that sort of stuff? How do we live in that world? Well, what we're going to see is Paul help us with this today. And he begins with the guiding principle, which is this. Knowledge is good, but the goal is love. That's what the guiding principle is that we're going to see. And you'll see why he starts like this when on our topic. You'll see why he starts like this. But let's, before we move to that, let's just make sure we get what he's saying right. Knowledge is good, but the goal is love. Now, he's not trying to pit these two against each other. And, and really what we're talking about here is the knowledge about God and the love for God. He's not pinning these two against each other as if you've got to pick one or the other. No, the reality is knowledge about God is really good, but it's got to lead to love for God. And when you pin them against each other and you pick only one, either way, you're going to find yourself with problems. Okay, so if you have knowledge about God but not love, where does that lead you? Well, he says knowledge puffs up. That's where it leads you. If you have knowledge, it's going to puff you up. It's going to make you arrogant and proud and think that you're better than anyone else. Now, we as a church, I think, need to be aware that this could be our danger. You know, we come from a tradition where the Bible is, is everything and the truth is everything. And don't get me wrong, the Bible is everything and the truth is everything. However, if we have knowledge without love, the danger is that it can puff us up. And you might have seen this person or you might have been this person. You know, I was. This was, this was my experience. I grew up in a church like ours and had knowledge about God, lots of knowledge about God, but I didn't love God. And so what happened was I was arrogant and proud. And I was the guy that would pick an argument with whoever I wanted because arguments and truth and being right was all that mattered in my life. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge without love puffs up. So, so we can't kind of go, okay, let's, let's just focus on knowledge and let's get rid of love. However, we, we also can't make the opposite error. We can't just focus on love and get rid of knowledge. And, and let's be clear, right? Paul does want us to know stuff about God. You know, we've seen that in this series. We've seen that in the whole book of 1 Corinthians. Do you remember he said lines like this? I resolve to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Paul wants us to know how to get to God and all that sort of stuff. So knowledge is important. And, and we don't want to split it up. Like love matters more than knowledge. And, and actually, what happens when you get rid of knowledge? What happens when you get rid of knowledge and you just have a love for God? you know what happens? We search for God in stars and signs and all sorts of things. In fact, I think where it leads you is actually to the temple, sacrificing, you know, like the Athens did, to an unknown God. If you have a love for God but not a knowledge, that's also going to be a problem. So what do we need to do? What do we need to understand here? Well, Paul's principle is this, knowledge is good but the goal is love. So we want to know lots about God, but it has to lead us to a love for Him. Now today, let's just think about this for just a moment. Let's think about the things that we might know about God. I mean, you think about the cross of Jesus, right? You think about the cross. The cross was not just a transaction that took place. You know what I mean? We can think about the cross as if the cross was just this kind of almost bank transaction where I became rich and Jesus became poor. There is a truth to that, but, but the cross was actually all about love. Do you see? Like, do you know that the knowledge about God is meant to lead you to love? This was all about the love that God has for you. We sung it before. God so loved, it's grounded in His love. You think about anything you know about God. I mean, one of the things that we should be thinking about is the reality of heaven and hell. You know, you, you think about heaven and hell. You think about the hope of eternal life. This is something that we long for and we love but do you realize that God has not just saved you so that you can have a future hope, a future glory? 
a part of the reality of God saving us is that he's adopted us. We have a father who loves us and a spirit who testifies within us, father. You see, knowledge about God must lead to love. Knowledge is good, but the goal is love. And what does he say in this space? He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So, so if we get this right, we'll see the impact that it's going to have on others. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, now, what's this got to do with the question we started with? Spirituality and what we can do in this world. And, and what's this got to do with food at the temple? Well, let's go deeper into Corinth, and then we'll, we'll see how this plays out. So, so food at the temple, eating food from the temple. It's important that we get this, because the context really matters. In Corinth, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing a temple. You know, you think of that pocket down on Logan Road. That was basically all of Corinth. Um, uh, I read in a book this week, you couldn't stand on a corner in Corinth and not see a temple. So the implication of that was all of these temples were doing sacrifices, lots of sacrifices. Now add to that the complication in Corinth that if you wanted to eat meat, it was actually a rare thing. Meat was a delicacy. Okay, now let's pull these two things together. What that meant was if you lived in Corinth and you wanted to eat meat, it probably would have been meat that was sacrificed at a temple. So it's not like today. You can't just go down to Woolies in Corinth and pick up your meat. You can't go to a butcher and pick up your meat. No, you're going to the temple to buy your meat. Now, let, let's feel the weight of this. Can you picture this? You know, like today, um, uh, we do, I think, have a weird obsession with meat. Have you noticed that? Like the way that people talk about bacon is like next level. And don't get me wrong, bacon's good, but... I mean, what are we doing here? I mean, people talk about chicken nuggets like chicken nuggets are their life. And then that's not even touching on the good stuff. You know, like, I mean, brisket. Let's talk about all the stuff that's making you hungry right now and you think, actually, that would be good for lunch. Okay, now picture the meat that you love, right? What if the only place you could buy your meat from was the local temple? Would it complicate things for you? Now, you think, no, because chicken nuggets are my life. Okay, so what if you bought it from the temple and the temple that you were going to sacrificed children to their gods? That might complicate things. Now, we don't know if all the temples were doing this, but we do know it was a practice. Or what if when you went to that temple to buy your meat, they also had temple prostitutes lined up? We know that was happening in Corinth. What if when you went to the temple, you saw thousands of people going in and bowing down to an idol and you knew where that idol was going? You knew where that, that direction was. We know this, right? We know the realities of heaven and hell. So if that's your reality for what you can eat, does it complicate things for you? I think it complicates things. I think it raises the question, can we eat the meat from the temple, especially since that's the only way that we can eat meat? Now, now, this is the question in Corinth. This is what's happening in the Corinthian church. They're asking these questions. So, can they eat meat? Well, Paul starts with this reality, this guiding principle. Knowledge about God is good, but the goal is love. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, how does this play out, especially when we're thinking about meat? Well, what we're going to see is that Paul begins with what you need to know. Okay, knowledge is not bad. He starts with what you know when it comes to this food stuff. And what we're going to see essentially is, from, from verse 4 on, what we're going to see is you're free to eat the meat. Okay, so how are we free to eat the meat from the temple? Well, let's have a look. 
He says this, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in this world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. So what's the deal with food sacrifice to idols? Where essentially what we're seeing here is you are free to eat the food. You're free to eat the meat from the temple. Even with all the complications, you can eat the meat from the temple. And why can you eat the meat from the temple? Well, there's two reasons here. The first one, the first reason you can eat it is because the world is the Lord's. Okay, that's the first one. You see this in that first section there where he says this, everything was made for and from and for and through the living God of the Bible. Okay, so, so that's the first guiding principle here. He, the living God is supreme. The whole world was made for God. And, and, and he made it, and what we see is that God is creator and everything else is created. You know, it's important we recognize this because often we think about different religions in this world as like this arm wrestle. Who's going to win between all the religions of the world? And, and, you know, when I was growing up, I used to watch the stats of like, oh, that religion's grown a bit more than that religion. That must mean that they're winning and all that sort of stuff. But no, the, the Bible tells us that there is one God who's revealed himself through Jesus, who is supreme, the creator, and then everything else fits under the living God of the Bible. He is supreme. Now, what does this mean when it comes to food? Well, his point here is idols have no claim over food because it's not theirs. God made the world. He made food. He made everything in the world. And so everything in the world fits under the living gods. Even if an idol claims that something is sacred or something is theirs, they actually have no right to claim that because it's the supreme gods. It's funny, at the moment we've got this, um, this thing in our house. This reminds me of the th- this thing in our house with Poppy, our two and a half year old daughter. She's going through this developmental stage where everything is hers. So literally, I reckon 50 times a day, she would say the word, that's mine. Now, it's pretty cute at times. At times it's not, but at times it's pretty cute. And uh, there's been some wild ones as she's figuring this out. You know, so we were reading a book the other day and she said to the character in the book, that's mine. Um, she, we were watching Bluey the other day on TV. She told Bluey something was hers. But my favorite of the lot, she was holding a toy one day and she walked past the mirror and saw herself in the mirror. And she said, no, that's mine. <laughs> to herself in the mirror about her own toy. It is yours, baby. That's good. But we're trying to walk her through this, and particularly we're trying to tell her that some things that aren't hers, she can't just claim to be hers, and that makes them hers. So, you know, at the library, uh, we were there um, a little while back now, and at the library, um, they have all the toddler time musical instruments and stuff like that right and so poppy gets one and she's playing but then another little boy came out and tried to grab a toy and poppy said that's mine and we said to her no baby that's not yours it's the libraries because just because you claim something doesn't make it yours right we know that truth well paul's essentially saying that about idols and and god's he's, he's saying idols can't claim stuff as their own 
Right? They can't claim food as their own or that something is sacred because the whole world is the Lord's. The supreme God of the world, the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the God who made the world through Jesus, as we know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, everything in the world is God's. And so what does that mean? That means you're free to eat the food. It's His. It's not anyone else's. You're free to eat the food because the food is God. So, so number one, um, God is supreme. You can eat the food. There's a second reason here, though, too, that you can eat the food. And the second reason is from verse 8. When you have a look at verse 8, it's because food is not what brings you near God, near to God. Okay, so, so that's where he focuses there on. Did, did you notice it there? Food does not bring us near to God. It's no better or worse for us. Paul's essentially saying it's just food. Right? Like you think about it, the living God, the creator of all and creation, it's just food. It's just another piece of creation. It doesn't bring you closer to God. It doesn't push you away from God because it's just food. Now, I do love how we know this. And this is why knowledge is good, right? I love how we know this. And we know this because of what does bring us close to God. Do you see, in the Bible, it's actually not about what you eat or drink or what you do. What brings you close to God is the finished work of Jesus. That's what brings you close to God. It's what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection. And when you trust in Jesus, you are brought near to God. You know, Ben read that out for us before. I mean, we were singing about it in Christ alone, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by grace you've been saved, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Do you see, whatever that works are, you know, whether it's baptism or whether it's being good enough or whether it's just not being bad or, or whether it's what you eat or drink, That's not what brings you near to God. What brings you near to God is Jesus. And when you trust in Jesus, you are near to God. You're adopted into the family. The Father is yours. It's a beautiful reality. And so so the implication then is when it comes to food, food is just food. It's not going to bring you near to God. It's not going to make you better off or worse. It's just food. So, So when we think about this question, can you eat the food from the temple? Paul says you're free to eat the food from the temple. Now, you can almost hear the collective sigh in the room. As the, you know, I picture the Corinthian church as they're gathering together, working through this letter from Paul, and, and they're sitting there thinking, like on edge, thinking about their lunch and their slow-cooked brisket that they've got at home. And like, if Paul says we can't eat this, then what are we doing for lunch? And, and then the meals for the rest of the week, we've got people coming over. You know, you, you feel that, right? That's the weight of what's happening here. And Paul says, you're free to eat, and the Corinthian church applauds and celebrates. But Paul doesn't stop there. You see, we're free to eat the food. You can eat the food. You can buy the food from the temple and and eat the food if you want to eat the food. But that's not actually the most important question to ask. The most important question to ask is not, am I free to eat the food? The most important question to ask is, is it loving to eat the food? Is it a good thing to eat the food? Should I eat the food? Not just can I, but should I? Now you see then, this is why the guiding principles here. Knowledge is good, but the goal is love. And so how could eating food be unloving? Well, what if you buying food from the temple caused someone else to stumble? This is essentially what Paul says. He keeps reading, and he says, he keeps writing, sorry, and he says this, you're free to eat the food, but look at verse 9. Be careful. However, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, 
eating in an idol's temple? Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. You are free to eat the food. But should you eat the food is a different question. And Paul says, if it's going to cause a brother or sister to stumble, I will never eat meat again. Now, do do we understand this principle here, right? Because I know that as you think about it in Corinth, it is a bit wild. I mean, we don't really think about food in this way um, today, and I'm not sure if we've had a circumstance like this. Um, But it is possible that the exact situation could come up in different ways. And so it's worth just thinking about that to try and think through the principle that Paul's saying and how it might make someone to stumble. So so making someone stumble is not just if they disagree with you, it's actually causing them almost to question their faith and to go back to a a life they don't want to. It's causing someone to act on a decision within themselves that they've decided not to. So so think about it like this. Um, We've got friends who are Sikhs, and that is they, they go to the Sikh temple. And over the years, we've we love them and we're praying for them and we hope they become Christians. And uh, we have this good relationship. He jokes with me and calls me the holy man and the priest of the neighborhood. And he asks me to pray for him every time I see him. And I say back to him, you know, I'm not praying to the same God as you, brother. And it's a nice relationship as we, you know, we talk about that. And he, he doesn't mind. He'll take whatever he can get, I think. But we're, we're praying for him and we're hoping he becomes Christian. Um, but, but you see, uh, once a year they have Diwali, the festival to the gods. And out of Diwali, what happens is uh, often they have food um, that they're bringing around to their friends. And they've delivered food from this festival to us a few times. Now, um, let's think about this. If If by God's grace they saved our friends, which we're praying and hoping that that they would and that we would see them among us. You know, they are a part of our community. They are the mission we are on, the vision that we're on here as a church. I hope that that happens. But if they become Christians and realize you're only saved by Jesus, then then what's going to happen is some things in their life are going to have to change, right? They're going to have to come to church instead of temple. And maybe they'd have to give up going to their festivals. and, And, you know, maybe Christmas becomes a festival they can enjoy things would change in their life but if this happens right they become christians they give up some of their lifestyle well what if next diwali elizabeth and i decide to exercise our freedom and we decide you know what we're going to go to this festival because it's not a festival to gods it's just a festival you know like it's a cultural experience we're not going to participate in it we're just going to kind of watch it and see what happens and eat the food but what if our neighbors our friends saw us doing this and then, like, do you see the danger that could happen, right? Like the danger is they could see us doing something and then decide, hang on, well, can I do that? And then maybe they go to the festival. And then for them, maybe it's not just a cultural experience, but it's actually a festival to the gods. You see the danger that could take place. Like this, this is not out of the realm of possibility. Now, of course, it's a hypothetical for us, but it's not a hypothetical for Paul. This is what happened in Corinth. People are coming to faith and they've got this life of the temple. They've got this life within the temple where they grew up sacrificing to the gods. And so what what Paul's saying here is this. You are free to eat the meat, 
But there's a chance that if you are seen going to the temple and buying that food, and if someone else who's a new Christian sees you doing that, then what, what can happen is they can think, well, your freedom means that I can do it, but for them it's a different thing. And so the question is not just can I eat the meat, but should I eat the meat? And what Paul is saying in some circumstances, no, you shouldn't eat the meat. In fact, what Paul says is I would never eat meat again if it would cause a brother or sister to stumble. You see, when we're thinking about living in a world of spirituality, the most important question is not what can I do, but what should I do? And the guiding principle is this. Knowledge is good, but the goal is love. Knowledge puffs up, but the goal is to build up. And so in the church in Corinth, this is how it plays out. You can eat the meat, but should you eat the meat is a different question. Now, as we th- see this and think about this today, then the question I think is, okay, so what about, what does it mean for us today? You know, I mean, is this just the unique circumstance like the, f- the friends that I have? Is that the unique circumstance that this plays out? Or is there other ways that this plays out? Well, I think it's worth us thinking about this principle today and kind of going into a few different um, spaces in terms of application, a few different areas, because I think that when we grasp this principle that he's giving us, it does apply in all sorts of life, and it helps us navigate a lot of different things. Okay, so let's think about it today. What does it mean for us today? I think there's two questions that we've got to ask when it comes to any situation in our life. So if you think about the spirituality that's going on in the world, the two questions we've got to ask is this. Number one, can I justify it? So let's go to that next table, Sammy. Um, the first question is, can I justify it? Okay, so, so am I free to do it? Does the knowledge that I have about God allow me to participate in this activity? That's the first question. And then the second question is, does it cause a Christian to stumble? That's the second question. The first question is about knowledge. The second question is about love. Now, I just want to say this here. Do you notice here that I've said Christian? Paul is speaking about the weaker brother or sister. So he's not speaking about, you know, if an unbeliever has a problem with something that you do, that you need to necessarily stop it. Now, we're actually going to talk about this next week. That's in the next passage. But, but in this passage, he's not speaking about that. He's speaking about Christians. So who are your weaker brothers and sisters? Who are the weaker brother and sister? Well, I think you could say a weaker brother or sister might be someone who's new to faith, a new Christian. Uh, a weaker brother or sister could be someone who's immature in their faith. And so, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes older people can, can be immature as well as younger people. We all can be immature in our faith. That might be a weaker brother or sister. A weaker brother or sister might also be, and like I don't know if I've thought about this too much, but it's worth thinking about it, it might also be our kids, you know, like if our kids in our home say that they follow Jesus, well, I think that they're in the, the space of weaker brother or sister. So it's worth thinking about these things in light of them as well as everyone else who watches your life. Okay, so, so there's the kind of the principles. The, the question is, can I justify it? The second question is, does it cause a Christian to stumble? Those two questions will help navigate lots of things in life. But let's think about a few examples of this, how this plays out, with spirituality and then a few other things. So firstly, the easy one, I think, what we had from this passage, food. Okay, so let's chuck it on the screen. We got food sacrificed to idols, but I'm also going to throw in there halal food and uh, Diwali, stuff from Diwali. Okay, that's sort of the same ballpark of stuff there. Can I justify it? The first question The answer is yes. Paul says you can justify it. Now, if the first answer is no, you don't have to keep going. That tells you I shouldn't do what I'm about to do, right? If you can't justify it, then don't do it. But then it moves to the second question, which does it cause a Christian to stumble? Now, the answer to that is maybe. 
So at certain points, it's not going to cause a Christian to stumble. In fact, um, in the next couple of chapters, Paul will say, if someone invites you to their house, eat the meat. That's what he will say. However, if their conscience is affected by it, don't eat the meat. So there are circumstances where, yes, you should eat it, and circumstances where, no, you shouldn't. You know, I mean, if you think about halal food, right? Yeah, go to the kebab store, buy your lunch there. But if you've got a friend who maybe came out of Islam, maybe you need to ask them the question, would me eating that food cause you to stumble? Do do you see? That's kind of the principle here. That's the easy one. Let's think about some other things. Okay, now this second section, we've got things kind of out of other religions that are like decorations. So uh, we've got Buddhist prayer flags, dream catchers, and are thrown in there lucky charms as well. Basically, anything else that you could put in the category of like stuff from other religions that might, might be things that you decorate with. Okay, first question, can I justify it? Now, we've said maybe here, because the, the reason it's a maybe is you could justify it if you're not attaching anything to it. You know, so I mean, you think about the principles from this passage, right? It, you know, the world is the Lord's, and this thing is not going to make me better off or worse than you know, in my faith to God. So if there's nothing attached to it, then you could justify it. From a decoration point of view, I don't know if you can justify it. But we're not here to talk about, you know, my opinions of your decorations. So, so you could justify it potentially. However, it's a maybe because if you think that that thing is doing something, then I don't think you can justify it. Now, the reason for that is, if you think that the prayer flags in your house are going to give you peace and wisdom, or if you think the dream catcher is going to give you good dreams, or if you think that the lucky charm is actually going to give you luck, then you can't justify it from the Bible because that's kind of on the same level of practicing other religions. And, and it's, there's an interesting thing here. Paul will say this later, that other religions are nothing, right? He'll say that. Other religions are nothing. That was from our passage. But later on, he will say, but it is demonic, And so there's a difference between participating in the thing and eating the food out of the thing. You know, and and let's just go back to the halal one because I think it's it makes sense. There's a difference between eating at the kebab shop shop and going to the mosque every weekend and practicing. Do you see? There's a difference here. And so we can eat the food out of the temple, but we can't practice other religions. And so I think if we're attaching meaning to our prayer flags or our dream catchers or whatever else you've got, then the answer would be no. You can't justify it. However, if you, if you said yes, and you move to the next question. Okay, does it cause a Christian to stumble? Now, this one too is a maybe. The reason it's a maybe is because not, it doesn't always cause someone to stumble. You know, in fact, I actually lived with a, a friend of mine who I would say was a new Christian, and he, um, in our house, put prayer flags up and had a dream catcher and stuff like that. And I disagreed with him on that. But just because I disagreed with him doesn't make me stumble. You know, there, there is a difference between disagreeing with someone and stumbling. So... I didn't see his prayer flags and then go to the Buddhist temple. That would be stumbling. I disagreed with it, but I didn't... Do you know what I mean? It, it's not, it doesn't always cause people to stumble. But of course, it might cause people to stumble. You know, like if you've got stuff in your house, if you've justified it because you've said there's nothing attached to it, it might cause people to stumble who come into your house. If you post it on social media without explaining it, that might cause someone to stumble. Or think about like your kids, right? If your kids see the decorations in your house and they see a dream catcher and they think it's going to bring them good dreams but you're not attaching that, well, that's actually causing your kids to stumble. 
You see how it plays out? So if it's causing anyone to stumble, then the answer is no, and you don't do it. So, so the two questions. Now, you can see it's maybe, maybe. As you work down there, you, you sort of get a sense of uh, as you dig deeper into different spiritualities and religions, it gets more and more dangerous, which then leads us to the next one, which uh, we've got palm readings, fortune-telling, and speaking to the dead, or seance. Now, these things are gaining in popularity. It's no longer just the markets or whatever. You go to Garden City and you'll see stuff like this around. So the first question we ask when it comes to spirituality and stuff like this, can you do this? The first question, can I justify it? The answer is from the Bible, no. If you're a follower of Jesus, we can't do this. This is on the level of sacrificing to demons. This is on the level of participating in other religions. And the living God of the Bible has called us to worship only him. And so you actually can't from the Bible, from your knowledge, justify doing these things. However, for the sake of the argument, for the sake of the exercise, let's move to the next one. Does it cause a Christian brother or sister to stumble? Well, again, the answer is maybe. Sometimes, of course, there's a reality that it won't cause people to stumble. Again, you know, I'm pretty sure my uh, housemate was getting into some of this stuff and it, it didn't cause me to go and do this stuff. However, again, in this space, we have to think, if, you've got the, if the first answer is no, people are watching your life. And if you're doing this stuff and someone who doesn't have the framework that you have watches you deliberately sin or do something the Bible says not to, it is going to cause them to stumble. And again, like are, are the kids in our home or the young people in our church going to look at what we're doing and think, well, that's an appropriate way to live and so I'm going to do that stuff. Now, you can see the complexity of this. There's some stuff when it comes to spirituality that we haven't even touched on here. But I think what these two questions do is it gives you a framework for how to approach anything when it comes to certain things in our world in terms of spirituality. Okay, so, so can I justify it? First question, does the knowledge about God allow me to do it? Second question, does it cause a Christian to stumble? As we think about those two things, if the first answer is yes and the second question is no, then we're free to do it. If the second question is yes, then we, we've got to give it up. I mean, Paul's saying there, I would not eat meat forever if that meant I would avoid causing a brother or sister to stumble. Okay, so, so there's a framework for spirituality. But, but what I want to do this morning is think about um, a, a couple more things that have to do not just with like explicit spirituality and temples and stuff like that, but just some other things in our world that this pattern and what Paul's saying here also applies to. Okay, and I mentioned some of them up front at this service, at the, in the sermon. So let's think about some of these things. Let's think about Garden City. Right, here we go, Garden City. Can you justify it? Let's not overthink this. Yes, you can. I've probably seen you at Garden City. I'm probably going this afternoon, right? You can justify it. Let's not overthink this. You can justify going to the shops. Um, but does it cause a Christian to stumble? Now, it's a maybe. Now, here's why it's a maybe. I don't know if anyone says that, you know, if, you, if I've seen you at Garden City, I've never thought, you're really causing me to stumble here, right? No one's attendance at Garden City has encouraged me to be there or not, right? That's just my experience of it. So let's be real about that. Um, however, the reason we have to think about this is because I think too we need to be real about this reality that how we spend our money might cause people to stumble. So... Let's think about this in relation to our kids, right? Now, again, if you don't have kids, you can think about it with the kids at church or the youth at church or really anyone who's looking to you for guidance on how to live life. And if you think no one's looking to you, you're wrong. We're always looking to other people at church on how to live life. 
And so we've got to think about the person in this scenario, and I'm going to say it for kids, but it does apply elsewhere. But think about this. We've got a chance with our money to tell our kids something. So, for example, if you're always buying the very best of things and lots of the very best of things, what message is that telling your kids? Because it is telling them something. Or if you're not giving towards God, and if you think this has just been asking for money, give somewhere else. It doesn't matter at this point. The point is, if you think that, not giving to God, if you're not giving to God, but you're spending lots of money elsewhere, do you know what message that sends to the people around you? That says prosperity is the most important thing. Living right here is is the most important thing. This life is the most important thing, and God is not. We have to be honest with ourselves. How we spend our money has a direct impact to the people watching us spend our money. And I think we, we need to have this framework too for our money. What does your money say about what you value? Let's think about the next one, the state of origin. And let's broaden it for, to sport. Can I justify it? Yes, you can justify it. You can watch the, the second game if you want to. Uh, you don't have to, <laughs> but you can. Okay, let's think about this next one. Does it cause a Christian to stumble? Now, uh, the reason for this is a maybe, right? So maybe um, there is a reality that sport can be used to build people up. You know, you can hang out and have a good discussion. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm only seeing people when we're talking about sport or watching sport, and it's a good opportunity to use that conversation to build into it or whatever. So, of course, uh, it doesn't cause everyone to stumble, and watching footy is not always going to do that. But, again, like money and the shops, we do have to think about this. There is a reality that how we interact with sport could cause people to stumble. So think about this. If you're watching every single game of footy this weekend, all eight games, what's that saying to the people in your home about what matters most? You know, like, what's that saying? And if you've got kids particularly, you've got to think about this because they put a value on you as a parent. What does that say about your values in life? Or think about it. Like, if you're giving up church or growth group, or serving the Lord for sport, what message is that sending your kids? Now, are you free to do it? Of course you're free to do it. But should you do it is a different question. And should you do it might actually lead you to the point where you consider, what do I want from my kids as they grow up? Do I want my kids, when they get to 18, 19, 20, to give up on church because of sport? These are the questions we've got to think through in this framework. We can't just be naive. Our decisions impact people. And we've we got to think about this. So you've got shopping, you've got sport. We're going to do one more, which is alcohol. Now, I know this might feel a bit left field, but here's why we're doing alcohol. Um, growing up for me, uh, I was on the, I think, the end of a Christian circle where there was a bunch of things in this category. So I think that people claimed stumbling and weaker brother stuff when it came to alcohol and a bunch of other stuff in that as well. And, you know, whatever your context is, you might have some of that stuff. But let's just think about this because I think it just does help you think through other areas of life as well. So let's think about it. Can you justify drinking alcohol? Now, it's a maybe because you can justify having a drink 
right? That's okay. Jesus turned water into wine, and that wasn't just for everyone else. The festivals for the Jewish calendar, the drinks were a part of it. I think from the Bible you can justify having a drink, but you can't justify from the Bible getting drunk. So that's why it's a maybe. Um, uh, we, we see this in the Bible, you know, don't, don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. And if you're wondering where the line is, it's usually around getting tipsy. You know, that's the line. You've crossed it at that point. So, so maybe. Can you justify it? Maybe, right? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But let's think about this when it comes to does it cause a Christian to stumble? Okay, now this is where it gets interesting, I think, for me as I think this stuff through. Again, because of the circles that I grew up in, um, the vibe of the time was if you drink, it's going to cause me to stumble because the Bible says don't drink and this is my conviction that you shouldn't drink and so don't drink. But, but think about it. Does, if I did have a drink, would that cause them to stumble? Now, we might disagree on it, but disagreement's not stumbling. And in my circles, this isn't true in every circle, but in my circles, if I had a drink, it wasn't going to cause them to go to the bottle and get drunk. The people that I were talking to would never even touch drink. In fact, many of them gave me their drinks. So just because you disagree with someone doesn't mean that you're causing them to stumble. However, of course, there would be times when you're causing people to stumble. I mean, you think about it, right? What if you had someone who's a new Christian who had a former life as an alcoholic? Maybe you shouldn't have growth group at the Glen. You know, like, but that's obvious, isn't it? If you've got someone who maybe has a past trauma with alcohol, it's worth wrestling with that and thinking that through. And the worst you can do is ask, hey, is this unhelpful for you to to have a drink here? You see how it's a bit complicated? It's also worth, I think, in this moment, thinking about kids too. You know, like for you, it might be okay to have a few drinks. But if your kid hit 18 and thought for them a few drinks was okay, maybe it wouldn't be. You know, what are we telling our kids about alcohol? If we're, if we're drinking all of the time, what does that tell them about alcohol? Is that, you know, do you need this to relax? Is that, there's questions that you've got to think through. I think with our kids here, where you land might be different house to house and family to family, and, and maybe it just leads you to having better conversations around this. But we do have to think about, I think, our, our kids when it comes to the weaker brother stuff or the weaker sister stuff. So there's the framework, right? Can I justify? Does it cause a Christian to stumble? Now, I, I do think that these two questions will help navigate any, any area in life. Because we haven't talked about a bunch of stuff that we could talk about. Some are more obvious than others, you know. We haven't talked about, like, phone usage, and leisure, and rest, and work, and things like gambling, right? We haven't talked about any of that stuff, but if you're thinking about it, the two questions there will help you navigate whether you can or whether you should do those things. Can I justify it? Does it cause a Christian to stumble? And and the reason these two questions are because we go back to our guiding principle, the place where Paul started. Knowledge is good. We want to know about God, but this must lead us to a love for God. That everything that we know about Christ and Him crucified, it's meant to lead us to a deep love for God. And when we love God, we recognize knowledge puffs up. But love, at its very core, builds up. It's here for one another. So this is complicated and complex. And I hope that the chats this week and growth group are good as we wrestle with this. But let's pray now and ask for God's help as we navigate this. Heavenly Father, we, we live in a complicated world. 
We live in a world that is not just straightforward and obvious in what we should do and what we can do, and it's complicated. So we pray, Lord, for wisdom as we navigate these waters. We pray for wisdom as we think through this. We pray for help in knowing what we can do. We pray that you would guide us in this area. We pray if we have questions that we would seek them out to know what are we free to do as followers of Jesus. But we pray too, Lord, that the the deepest question that we're thinking about in our life is not just what can we do, but what should we do. Father, we want to be a people who deeply love you, who understand the cross and everything. It's all about love, that you have loved us, that you know us. Help us to be a church that loves you and then builds one another up. Guide us in this, help us in this, and we pray that you would do this for your glory and the good of your people, that we would be a church that genuinely cares about one another and would far rather sacrifice something good for the sake of loving one another. We pray for help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.